Our text for this morning's sermon is Luke seven thirty six through fifty. Luke seven thirty six through fifty. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner." And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. Father, I pray you give us insight into this text. God, I pray that you help us see the thing that you wanted Simon to see. God, I pray that you would grant us a heart that doesn't just merely hear this sermon, but one that is humbled by it and clings and loves Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to ask you a a couple questions this morning as a way of introduction and have you consider in your heart what the answer would be. Uh, The first question is this, are you a loving person? Are you a loving person? Are you a good person who loves other 
people. Who here, I wonder, would want to be a more loving person? Who here recognizes that they need to grow in love for God and for other people? Is there anyone here who feels they need greater love for their husband or wife, for their children, for their family members, for their friends, for their co-workers, for their neighbors, for God? Is there anyone here who feels satisfied in their love towards all those people? Is there people here who are sometimes afraid at the coldness they feel in their heart towards something they know they ought to be warm towards? Maybe it's someone who's suffering, and yet in your heart you feel a hardness, a coldness, a bitterness, a stubbornness. Is there anyone here who needs more compassion, more selfless love, a greater desire to read their Bibles and know God, a greater desire to pray? Is there anyone lacking in love this morning? That's the question. Well, I want to give you a sermon that will help you love more this morning. Now, second question. Who here wants to see more clearly the horrifying, scandalizing, disgusting, offensive devastating nature of their own sin and pride. First question is, who wants to be more loving? Second question is, who wants to see more clearly? Think about what I'm saying. See more clearly what's really deep down in your heart. The horrifying, scandalizing, disgusting, offensive. Aren't these words horrible? I don't even like saying them. But I'm here this morning to show you what Christ is teaching. And what Christ is teaching, I think, is that you can't get a sermon on how to be more loving without the sermon about seeing more clearly who you really are. If you're lacking in love, you're lacking in sight of your own sin, in your own selfishness, in your own self-righteousness, in your own pride. I think we'll see that clearly In this text. So are you a loving person? Are you a good person? 
Just, just think for a minute. Have you, have you thought in the last month, have you looked at the world and thought in your mind, man, this world, I tell you what, look at what's going on in our country. Have you thought that? Because there's two ways to think that. There's a way to shake your head and say, this world, they're so bad. Why can't they be like me? If I was in control of this world, it wouldn't look like this. This world, I tell you what. You want to know what that type of thinking leads to? Great discussion at coffee time with your girlfriends or your guy friends where you get to talk about how good you are and how rotten the world is. Or you could be like another person that looks at the world and shakes its head and says, look at this world. Broken, like me. Lost. Needing help. You want to know what that leads to? Compassion. Prayer. It's no fun to sit around and talk about how the world's going to hell in the handbasket as though you have it all together when you know you don't have it all together. You see, the nature of sin is tricky. Self-righteousness has the right answers a lot of times. You get the right Bible answers right, but at the same time, your heart can be rotten, and therefore, our love can be lacking and cold. This morning, our text teaches that in order to be more loving, we need to see more clearly who we are, understand more clearly who we are. Blindness to your sin will always turn into a prideful, critical, judgmental spirit towards others. Even though you may consider yourself a good person and loving, the way people will experience you, the reality of your relationship with them will actually be what maybe you think it's not. So as we dive into this text, there's two things I want us to look at. First, and most importantly, we're asking the question, who is Jesus? You remember back at the beginning of uh, the Gospel of Luke, Luke is writing an orderly account that is inspired by the Holy Spirit for a man named Theophilus, so that, he says, you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. The purpose of Luke is so that Theophilus can have certainty about the person of Jesus Christ. And already through seven chapters, we've seen so much of who Christ is. In fact, this whole chapter, chapter 7, is all about who Christ is. You could say the chapter is Christological. Luke wants to set out 
Look at what the Savior's like. And what we've already seen in chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, is that Christ is a healer. He healed the centurion's uh, servant, even a Gentile. It's surprising. And then in verse 11, verses 11 through 17, we see that this Jesus is not only one who can heal, but he's one who can raise the dead. And then we see in verses 18 through 35, John the Baptist is saying, are you the coming one? And indeed, we get the answer that this is the coming one, the one whom the scriptures prophesied, the Christ, the Savior. And today we're going to see that this is the one who forgives sin. We're going to see this. If you look at verse 49 of our text, At the end of this text, those at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? The second thing we're going to look at, not just who is Jesus, but who am I? In chapter 7, we get a few examples. There's the centurion, Roman captain, who fears God, who believes Jesus is God, who believes himself a sinner, and humbly trusts Christ in a way that all of Israel doesn't. And then in our text today, we're going to see a sinful woman, probably a prostitute, and Simon, a self-righteous Pharisee, a religious man who has all the right answers. And one of the questions we're going to consider is, who are you more like? So let's look at this text. And it's important to say at the front end uh, that this incident is not to be confused with uh, the latter anointing of Jesus by Mary. So there's two similar stories. One at the end of Jesus' ministry when Mary uh, anoints his feet and wipes them with her hair, this expensive uh, nard that uh, she puts on Jesus' feet. It's really similar and it's tricky because that story takes place in the house of Simon the leper. This one takes place in the house of Simon um, the um, uh, let me see here. I forget. Um, Simon the Pharisee is what it, what it says. So you might think at first account these are the same story, but it's clear they're not. And some of the reasons why we know this is the story recorded in this passage took takes place in Galilee, not Bethany. The unnamed woman in this story uh, is most likely a prostitute. It's not Mary. In fact, Mary Magdalene, Mary is going to be talked about in the very next text. She gets introduced. And so if this is Mary, uh, we would know that. And uh, also, uh, this happened early in his ministry where the other happens late. 
So let's look at uh, this story, starting in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Now let's just stop here for a minute and remember who the Pharisees are. The Pharisees are the religious ones. They're the ones who are more educated in the scriptures than anyone else. They're the ones that the Jewish culture would look to as the most godly. They tithe the most. They, you could say it, it looks like they give up the most uh, with their faith. But we can be sure at this point in time that this Pharisee doesn't have good intentions inviting Jesus into his house. You see, the Pharisees were very interested in Jesus, but they're always interested in Jesus to have a conversation with him, to be around him so they could catch him in a trap. You see, Jesus was doing all sorts of things that was driving them crazy, and they were always looking for opportunities to discuss with him things of God, watch what he does so they could have something on him and, and uh, so they could tell the people not to follow him because all the people up to this point looked at them. But now the crowds have been going to Christ. And a table at, the, at this point in time in their home would just be a table right down uh, by the ground. And when it says he reclined at a table, what they would do is they would kind of lie down and they would uh, rest on their elbows like this or like this. Uh, that might seem weird to us. That's not how we eat, but it's actually probably a pretty relaxing way to recline and eat a meal. And unlike our homes, strangers don't walk into our homes. We would call the cops. Some of you might pull out your conceal and carry and be ready to go if other people came into your home. But in Jesus's day, what they would often do after a rabbi or teacher would speak uh, on the Sabbath day, they would invite that rabbi over to a home. It would be honor to the person who uh, gets to have the rabbi come into their home and they would discuss the things of God. And what they would do is they would, uh, a lot of their homes didn't have doors on them. Some of them did, but they would have the doors open and the community was welcome to come into the house, stand at the outskirts of the room and listen in to the teacher. Now, only certain ones were invited to the meal but others could come and spectate and listen. So the setting you need to have in your mind is Jesus being invited to be one of the ones that gets to recline at a table with Simon uh, the Pharisee. And uh, there's a good chance that it might be dark in that room. It might be candle lit. So there's a crowd there where those who are close to the candles, you see their faces. Those in the outskirts of the room, you might not. And the reason why I say that is it, it, it wouldn't be very likely that this sinful woman would get into the house of a Pharisee before she'd be thrown out. She would defile the house. That's how the Jews 
uh, saw prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners, and here Jesus has been eating with them. That's one of the things they're upset with. So then in verse 37, what we see is, and behold, the woman of the city, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Now, Luke doesn't say that as in all people are sinners. Luke knows that. But in Jesus's day, there were the sinners. There were the tax collectors. There were the prostitutes. There were the pagans. That to the Jews, they were the sinners. So she is one of the most despised people in this self-righteous Jewish community. And when she had learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, those reclining at the table, their feet are out from the table. So a woman comes from behind and begins weeping, which would cause a scene. This would disrupt the dinner meal. Who is that? Oh, that's so-and-so. Probably the prostitute. Look at this. Look what's going on. She wipes his feet with her hair. To let your hair down in Jewish culture, for a woman to let her hair down, you could divorce your wife for that. That was to say, I'm a prostitute. I want to sleep with anyone. It was the sign to the culture that I'm a loose woman. So to understand what's going on here is... You have to understand what's going on in the, in the culture. She begins to weep. What's making her weep? We learn later in the story that she has to know her sin. And she has to know that Christ is her Savior. Why else would she take this expensive ointment? You know, cheap ointment wouldn't be in an alabaster jar. And why else would she be anointing his feet? And then we're told in verse uh, 39, Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner." Now, what we've already seen in chapter 7 is Israel thinks Jesus, some, some of the Israelites think, some of the Jews thinks he's a prophet. They don't realize he's the prophet, that he's the Messiah. So some of them, even the Pharisees might be trying to figure out if Jesus is a prophet. But now the skeptical Pharisee says, aha, I'm glad I invited Jesus over today. <laughs> now... We know he's not even a prophet. For if he was, she, he would know who she was. 
that she's a prostitute. And I'm just here to tell you, if a woman, and we can understand this in our culture, if a woman is kissing a man's feet and wiping the feet with her hair, those there probably are thinking, boy, she's mighty, they're mighty comfortable together. You know, they're, they're pretty close that he doesn't even seem to be minding that this is happening. Now we know he's not a prophet. He doesn't know who she is. Now, what would, what would be normal in that culture is if you respected your guest, you would have your servant wash his feet. You might even uh, take a little oil and anoint their head in honor of your guest. That was a normal cultural thing to do. But this woman doesn't just go to anoint his head, but she kisses his feet. Now, only no Jewish slaves could even wash feet. Only a Gentile slave could. To wash someone's feet was the lowest possible thing you could do. And here she's kissing his feet and he doesn't seem to mind. And, and so in verse 39, he says, if he were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman uh, what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. <clears throat> Notice it says in verse 39, he said to himself. He didn't say this out loud. He said it to himself. He's not a prophet, for prophets know things. He knows who people are without ever maybe meeting them. And look how ironic this is. Look at verse 40. And Jesus answering. <laughs> this is an unspoken thought, question in his heart. And Jesus is answering him. Who could do that but a prophet? Maybe even God, huh? But what he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. He answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. Now, 500 denarii would be a little more than a year and a half salary. Uh, a, normal, a normal laborer in Jesus' day would get one denarii a day. So this might be like $100,000, $120,000. Uh, in our day and age. And... So there's a certain money lender who had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii, a year and a half's wages, and the other 50, which would be like two months' wages. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon, Simon answered, the one, I suppose. You can even almost hear the reluctance of this Pharisee. For whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? As, do you see her? I think it's kind of ironic that those are the words he uses. 
Because Simon sees the woman in one aspect, prostitute, sinner, disgusting. That's what he sees. Jesus sees something totally different. Do you see her, Simon? He says. And then he says, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, he doesn't deny who she is. He knows who she is. He's a prophet. He's the prophet, and he's God. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Now, that's in the, uh, in the Greek verb tense. It's the perfect tense. They are forgiven, meaning they've already been forgiven in the past. Faith brought her in there. And a perfect tense verb means something that happened in the past that has present tense implications that are still happening. So she's been forgiven in the past, and she's loving me in the present. She knows she's forgiven. That's why she's weeping. That's why she's treating him like a king, like her Savior. And then he says, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, when he says, for she loved much, she doesn't earn her forgiveness by loving, but rather what he's saying is, look at her love. That's how you know she's been forgiven. You see, the only way you can be loving is if you know how rotten you are. The more clearly you see your sin, the more precious your Savior becomes. The more clearly you see your sin, the less critical you are of others. The more patience you have for others who are struggling with sin. Self-righteous people struggle with love because they don't see themselves clearly. She's overpouring with love because she's broken down all the way. Trust me, when you walk into a Pharisee's house, you let down your hair and you start kissing someone's feet, you've let it all go because everyone in that room is going to be judging you. But here she is, worshiping, loving Christ. But he who is forgiven little loves little. The scripture tells us that you'll know they are Christians. Jesus says, they'll know you're my disciples by your love. By your love. Your prayers for the world, not your anger towards the world. That's how they'll know you're a Christian. Not because you say, oh, they, you know, they're doing this and they're doing that. And that rah, rah, we're a righteous nation. That's not how they know we're Christians. 
It's when we look at the broken world, rejecting God's ways, rejecting God's laws, and we remember that's us before God turned the lights on and showed us our Savior. The world will know we're Christians when, we're, when we love them, when we pray for them, when we're willing to suffer for them. And then look at what Jesus says to her, verse 48. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. It doesn't mean that they're forgiven at that moment because she loved. We're going to see that uh, here in a moment. But the evidence of her faith came out in her love. And he says this most offensive thing in two ways. Your sins are forgiven. For one, a Pharisee would say, there's no way her sins can be forgiven. She's got to prove it first, they would probably say. But Jesus says it's done. She's forgiven. And the second thing that offends them is what we see. Then those who are at the table begin to say among themselves, just like men or women at coffee maybe, who is this who even forgives sins? You see, he invited Jesus in, not to learn from Jesus, but he all ready wanted to see Jesus in a certain way. And now they have something else. Who is this that claims he being a man can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. Who does he think he is? And then in verse 50, he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Not her love didn't save her. Her faith in Christ saved her. And her love was proof of this faith. So back to the two questions. Who is this Jesus? We already know he's a healer, one who can raise the dead, the coming one. But now we see that Christ has authority to forgive sins. He's the Messiah. Luke wants Theophilus to know that Jesus Christ is the one who can forgive sins. Jesus Christ is the one to worship. There's four things that Robert Stein points out that shows Jesus' uh, uh, the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. First of all, he knew Simon's thoughts. He knew the woman was a sinner. Jesus is able to forgive sins. And that the woman's attitude towards Jesus determined her salvation. Only the Christ, only a God-man could have those truths spoken about them. So we learn that Jesus is the Christ, that he is God's son, that he is the second person of the Trinity. So how about answering the question, who am I? You know, we have the prostitute. 
The one who knows themselves not to be worthy. The one who sees her sin clearly. The one who loves Christ passionately and authentically. Broken. She loves with the broken sort of love. She, she's trusting Christ alone because everyone else in that room isn't going to comfort her. But it's worth it for her. Are you more like her? You know, if you're going to point to an Old Testament person who loves God in an amazing way, who would you say? I would say if we took a poll, if this were family feud, David's going to win. I mean, he wrote all these psalms. David's going to be the number one answer. Well, how did David love so much? Just listen to Psalm 139, verse 23. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. Let me see the ugliness of who I am. That's what turns into worship and love. How about Psalm 51? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. He doesn't say because I'm a good person. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, You delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my transgressions. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. He says, give me a heart that loves you, that's willing in my love for you. And then a few verses later, it turns into worship. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouths will declare your praise. And then he says, uh, the sacrifice are, uh, for you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You are not pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken, contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. David says, You know my sin. Me cleaning myself up, trying to earn my salvation by my own works, that's not what pleases you. What pleases you is someone who sees their own sin and has a broken, humble, contrite heart. That's who God grabs onto. That's who God lifts up and shows mercy to. The majority of people 
your neighbors, your friends, the majority of people in this world think good people go to heaven. It's a satanic lie. It's not true. Who did Jesus come for? Not the good ones. He came to seek and save the lost. And what he means by that is those who know they're lost. You don't get to heaven by going to church. You don't get to heaven by doing good deeds. You get to heaven by becoming broken over your lack of righteousness. Seeing your only hope in Jesus Christ. Realizing that he lived a perfect life. He built up a gift called righteousness. And the scripture tells us anyone who trusts in him by faith gets all that righteousness put in their account. Not because of works, but because they trusted in him. It's amazing. When you trust Jesus, he gets all of your sin and you get all of his goodness. The grace of God. My prayer is, is that we're not a church that fools ourselves saying we're the good ones. We're the great ones. We're the ones God is pleased with. How do you think of your relationship with God? Do you think of Jesus as this great guy and you're a good one that goes with him? It's like he's glad to have you on his team because you're so good. Or do you view your relationship with, with God as, I'm so sinful. What I deserve is punishment in hell. But my only hope is that Savior who died on the cross for my sins. So my relation to Him is, I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm a wretch. But He's the Lord, my Savior. My prayer is that everyone here loses hope in their own goodness and trust in Christ. But in a room this big, I'm sure there's Simons. In fact, in every Christian in this room, there's a Simon that needs to be put to death, <laughs> that needs to die more. Because when you become a Christian, your heart doesn't become pure in the moment. There's a process. There's a Pharisee in all of us that needs to continue to die. That needs to continue to be put to death. What was Simon like? He was lacking love for Jesus. He was critical of others. He was self-righteous. He was un grateful. If you leave here today and say, what was the point of the sermon? The point of the sermon is this. Pray that you may see your sin. Have some grasp of how rotten it is. Here's the best you can get, by the way. If you're trying to figure out how bad your sin is, what it took to save you is the perfect son of God to die in your place. You can't do better than that than trying to dive the depths of how horrible our sin is. But God never meant for us to be convicted of sin and to be left hopeless. But in His love, He sent Christ that we might see our salvation. Some people take Christ, turn Him into a good teacher, and say, be better and He might let you into heaven. 
That's not the gospel. That's not what the Bible teaches. The first seven chapters of Luke, the self-righteous religious ones, are headed for hell. And the tax collectors and the prostitutes, those who come from the east and west, are reclining at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And the Jews, the self-righteous ones, are left out. So in conclusion, I just want to run this thing backwards. If we're going to read this text backwards, here's how we might see it. Here's how we might summarize it. Here's how the forgiven person sees, answers these questions. Who can forgive sins? Jesus is the one who can forgive sins. He is God. Who can be forgiven? Those who love much. Who loves much? Those who own and see their own sin and trust Jesus. Here's how a self-righteous person, here's what they miss in this text. Who can forgive sins? God alone, not Jesus. Who can be forgiven? Those who are clean and good. Who are clean and good? I am. That's how they would run it. And it's my prayer that God has shown you grace so that you can see who you are You can see the glory of Christ and that you will worship Him from the heart. You know, at one point later in a few chapters, as we continue on in Luke, in chapter 13, His disciples come up to Him and say, are only a few people going to be saved? And Jesus says, strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many will seek to enter but they won't be able to. And then the ones he describes that aren't able to enter, they're standing at the door and knocking, but the door's already been shut. The banquet's already started. Here's the amazing thing about how he describes those people. You know what they say? We ate with you. We were in your presence. We heard your teaching. You know what they're saying? We went to church. We were in the synagogue. We're the religious ones. And then he says they're going to come from the east and the west, and meaning Gentiles are in. But these religious ones are out. And then he says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's nothing worse. I can't imagine anything worse than a self-righteous person who sure they're going to heaven. To find out in the end, door's been shut. It was for the sinners, for those who know their loss. Can you imagine the gnashing of teeth and anger to live your whole life building up good works and to find out that's not how you're saved? It's my prayer that we enter through the narrow gate. And here's what I want to say about the narrow gate. Here's what it means to enter the narrow gate. You can't get in. You can't squeeze through a narrow gate with anything. You have a bag. Here's my righteousness. Here's my goodness. I went to church. I, you know, I didn't kill anybody. I tried to be nice to everybody. Good people get in, right? Try to pull that through the narrow gate. You're not getting through. 
Only those who are totally naked of righteousness. You have nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring. Only to the cross I cling. Isn't it amazing? The prostitute is declared by our Savior forgiven. She's mine. Father, I pray that you would humble us. Lord, I pray that you would help us see more and more of our own pride. Lord, I pray that you would humble us, that we could be broken, even in front of other people. We could be broken and cling to you. God, I pray that any sort of self-righteousness that we're doing amongst ourselves that's causing us not to love each other, Lord, I pray you would break that down. Those who are trying to pretend like they have these perfect little lives, who don't struggle with sin, help us kill that, Lord. And be compassionate and patient with each other and point each other to Christ. Lord, I pray all of us would cling to Christ, our only hope. In Jesus' name, amen.